0: Well, we are continuing on in our series through our study of the heart of the law, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, in the beginning of the Bible, we are all pretty familiar with Genesis and Exodus, right? We all know those stories. We know the stories of the creation, the flood, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Let my people go. We know about all of those stories, Very few of us, as it turns out, are familiar with these books, and sometimes we don't even really understand the purpose of these books, but these are incredibly important books for your life and for mine. Because while Genesis tells a story of how God was forming the people and how he had a plan for the people of Israel before they even came to be, well, Exodus tells a story of God's salvation of his people of how God took them from, from slavery into freedom. And he took these people and made them his own. It is Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that shows how God takes this people who he has made to be his own, and he says, this is how we should relate to one another. This is where he takes 40 years for a nation, to transform them from a people that only have kind of heard of Him to a people who are in relationship with Him, who truly know Him. We have finished our five uh, messages looking through the themes of Leviticus. Now we are on our second of five messages looking at the major themes of the book of Numbers. Why is Numbers specifically important? Because Numbers begins for us a theme for Israel that we are going to see repeated again and again and again for the rest of the Bible. The theme is that of how an ever-loving, never-failing God is in relationship with a never-loving, ever-failing people. An ever-loving, never-failing God in relationship with a never-loving, ever-failing people. And we really see that uh, start to play out in the book of Numbers. If you're familiar with that at all, then you see that quite a bit. Now, with Numbers, you see a lot of Israel's rebellion and a great deal of discipline from God. And we're going to be seeing that today. So I need us to understand that there's two sides to the coin of a never-loving ever-failing people relating to an ever-loving, never-failing God. The first side of the coin is that no matter how faithful God is to Israel, the people still rebel. Again and again and again, they rebel against God. That's kind of a negative way to look at it, isn't it? Sorry, that's kind of rude, but... It happens. Don't worry, I sanitize afterwards. The other way that we can look at this is to say that no matter how rebellious Israel is, God is always faithful to his people. And some of us might look at the, the book through one lens, some of us might try to look through it through another lens, but the fact is we need to understand it from both, because there are two sides of the same coin. Yet, even though one happens, the other happens. We see both of those. The book of Numbers is a downward progression for the most part. The end of Leviticus shows how God has set things up and said this is how things should be and as soon as they leave Sinai, they get off to a bad start and then there is an incident that happens at Kadesh Barnea which we're going to look at next week. You might not know what that place means. You will as of next week and hopefully it will stick with you for the rest of your life. And after Kadesh Barnea, they continue to be a rebellious people And yet, God remains faithful to them through it all. Today we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 11 through 12 and seeing a bad start. And because, and as we look through this, it's going to be one and a half chapters, about 50 verses, that this section is. And as we look through this, uh, we're going to see four separate incidents of struggle within the nation of Israel and God's response to it. We're going to see the warning against complaint. We're going to see the dark side of nostalgia. We're going to see the risk of burnout. We're going to see the danger of selfish ambition. Now, there's no specific reason why I've picked today to talk to you guys, and if, if you guys have just recently come back from snowboarding, I'm sorry. Like I have not planned this out, I promise you. Like This is how things were, were going to be, because this is our progression through. But it is the Bible, and we are going to be working through it, because it is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What we're going to be doing as we walk through this is a little different than normal. Uh, Because it's only one and a half chapters, and not me trying to summarize eight chapters, I'm going to let the Bible speak primarily for itself. We're going to do a, a great deal of reading today, which means I'm going to be doing a great deal of water drinking to dry to wet my throat again, and we're going to be just kind of interspersing little tiny bite-sized lessons every once in a while through here, just, uh, just kind of pull ourselves out, get some perspective before we dive back in, and then at the end we're going to say, well that's a whole lot of interesting things that happen, what connects them to each other, and why does this matter for my life? So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn in it to Numbers chapter 11. We are not actually going to have the verses on the screen this time. Uh, So if you have a Bible with you, whether a, a physical Bible or if you have it on your phone, then you can go ahead and we will read through this these chapters right now. Starting with Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. You can read along or you can listen along. By the way, as a quick note, uh, whenever you see the words uh, Lord or God in all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the personal name of God that everyone refers to him. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush and Moses said, What's your name? God said, Ehyeh Asher ehyeh, means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And that's God referring to himself in first person. Every time that he's referred to after that, he's called Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. They take out the vowels from there. And uh, the way that that's more directly translated is, he is. So whenever you see that, I'm going to be calling him by his personal name, Yahweh, uh, as it's written in there just so you're not surprised. All right, Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When the people complained, it displeased Yahweh. When Yahweh heard it, his anger burned, so the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outer parts of the camp. When the people cried to Moses, he prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died out. So he called the name of that place Taberah, which means burning, because there the fire of Yahweh burned among them not going to stick around for a lot of big, long messages for each of these sections because I want to value your time. But the bite-sized lesson that we can get out of this, number one, is when God leads and provides for you, be careful to avoid grumbling about what He isn't giving. When God leads and provides for you, be careful to avoid grumbling about what He isn't giving. Alright, let's keep going. Starting in verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them craved more desirable foods. So the Israelites wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we're all dried up and there's nothing at all before us except this manna. Now, the manna, this is still in the Bible, was like coriander seed, the little tiny seeds that you find. And its color was the color of bdellium, brown. And its people, the people went out and gathered it and ground it with mills or pounded it in mortars. They baked it in pans and made cakes of it. It tasted like fresh olive oil. And when the dew came down on the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So here we see God's miraculous provision and the people's response. And our bite-sized lesson number two that we can take away is already gone. Hear how they were saying, well, let's return to Egypt. Wasn't it so great in Egypt? Be wary of longing to return to the good old days. Selective memory is real. Choosing to only think about what was better back then, and not think about where God has led you. Selective memory is real, and it can be harmful. Keep going. Verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And when the anger of Yahweh was kindled greatly, Moses was also displeased. And Moses said to Yahweh, Why have you afflicted your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay this burden of this entire people on me? Did I conceive this entire people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me? Carry them in your arms as a foster foster father bears a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers. From where shall I get meat to give to this entire people? For they cry to me, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear this entire people alone because it's too heavy for me. But if you are going to deal with me like this, Moses says, then kill me immediately. If I have found favor in your sight, then don't let me see my trouble. Words from Moses, straight out of Scripture. Everyone is under authority Everyone is under authority, whether you are under your parents or your grandparents, whether you're under a, a manager or a supervisor, whether you are under someone at, at, at the church. I am under authority in village missions. I have the Hernandez's, the district representatives. Everyone is under authority in some way. And so the bite-sized lesson number three we can get out of this is you who are under the authority of someone else can make the life of the person who is tasked with leadership over you either make their life either a joy or a burden. And for the Israelites, standing at the doors of their tents, not quietly saying, oh, this is so hard inside, but standing and calling out to their neighbors and saying, hey, isn't life terrible? As Moses would walk past, they were making his life itself a burden. How does God respond? Verse 16. Yahweh said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know are elders of the people and officials over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their position there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take part of the spirit that's on you and will put it on them, and they will bear some of the burden of the people with you so that you do not have to bear it all by yourself. And say to the people, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. And you will eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of Yahweh, saying, Who will give us meat, for life was good for us in Egypt? Therefore, God telling Moses to say this, Yahweh will give you meat, and you will eat. You will eat not just one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and makes you sick because you despise Yahweh who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? Ooh, these are hard words, aren't they? Have you read those before? All problems find their solution in God's provision, not in our independent strength. Moses needed to hear that because he thought that he had to bear the burden alone, and God said, you don't. I will provide for you. The people thought that they needed provision, and they were complaining that they couldn't do that, and God said, I will provide for you. This is what we can take out of this. Let's keep going. Verse 21. Moses said, The people around me are six hundred thousand on foot, but you say I'll give them meat, for they may eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if the flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? If all the fish of the sea were caught for them, would they have enough? And Yahweh said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Yahweh's hand? Now you will see whether my word to you will come true or not. What can we take out of this quick lesson? that even the most mature believers, even the most mature Christians, can lose perspective and forget God's love, power, and faithfulness. Just because you've been walking with God for a number of years and you know your Bible and you pray does not mean that anyone is ever immune from struggling with their faith and wondering whether God is powerful. Look at all that Moses saw God do and he is questioning God in this moment of weakness. It happens, it comes, and we should not be surprised, but we should turn back to God. Let's keep going. Verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh. He then gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and had them stand around the tabernacle. And Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to them. And he took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but didn't do so again. But two men remained in the camp. One's name was Eldad, the other's name was Medad. And the spirit rested on them. Now they were among those in the registration, but had not gone to the tabernacle. So they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, yes, that Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his choice young men, one of the 70, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. And Moses said to him, Are you jealous for me? I wish all Yahweh's people were prophets, that Yahweh would put his spirit on them. And then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. When God provides support, there are times when He provides generously and times when He provides from unexpected places, places you would not have thought to look. And when He does that, it is incredibly important that your pride and mine not get in the way. That when, not just by the way, when anyone comes and says, I feel like God is telling me to do this, You have to be careful. You have to make sure that they, they would be preaching the true gospel. You'd have to make sure that God has actually gifted them. But if they have, you do not allow your pride to stop what God is trying to do. You fight your pride and you thank him for that. All right, here we go. Here's where we take a look at what happens. To, to Israel after they asked for meat. Here we go. We're most of the way through. Verse 31. Now a wind went out from Yahweh and brought quail from the sea and let them fall near the camp about a day's journey on this side, about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about three feet high on the surface of the ground. Pause. I'm not even to the, the point of talking about the lesson. Moses said, are you sure that you can feed the people meat for an entire month? And God says, watch me. You know how far it takes a person to journey about a day? At least several miles, if like you're, they're taking it easy. So for several miles, all around, I don't know if it was in the camp or in a ring around it, God miraculously provided quail about this high. Berean is about four feet tall. It would come up to his neck. That is what he did. That's just amazing. Why do we not talk about that miracle more? He's so stuck on the Red Sea, we forget about the quail. Uh, maybe because what comes next? Uh, verse 32. The people stayed up all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. The one who gathered the least gathered ten homers. That's two thousand liters. That's ten five-gallon buckets for the person, more than, for the person who gathered the least. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before they chewed it, the anger of Yahweh burned against the people and Yahweh struck the people with a very great plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of lust, because there they buried the people that craved different food. The people traveled from Kibroth Hatava to Hazaroth, which means settlement, and they stayed at Hazaroth. This is the same God of grace who came down and died for us to save us from our sins. This is the very same God. But what he was doing was he was teaching Israel a lesson about how to relate to him. And there is a warning in here for you and for me. You may have a time where you start to complain about what God is doing and say you wish God had done things differently and you may turn bitter in your complaint and then suddenly find that almost as a miracle... What you have been complaining about gets taken away. Or what you have been complaining about not having gets given to you. When that happens, even if it is from God, be careful, be wary. Because God's provision might be judgment more than blessing. We have a saying that is, is pretty familiar to us, which tells pretty much the same thing, don't we? Be careful what you wish for, Anyone? Because not just might get it all, and then something you don't want, right? We're going to keep going. Chapter 12. Then, then, after all of this, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. They said, Has Yahweh only spoken to Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? And Yahweh heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more so than any man on the face of the earth. And that, by the way, just makes me laugh, because Moses wrote this book. So, it's, it's funny that he said he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. It's kind of like when I like to say, uh, that my, pri- my greatness is only surpassed by my humility. But when I say it, it's a joke. Moses actually wrote it as, uh, from the Spirit, so we can actually say it's true. Anyways, side note. Verse 4. Yahweh spoke immediately to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The three of you come to the tent of meeting. Uh oh. <laughs> so the three of them went. And Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. He then called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. Yahweh said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. Yet my servant Moses is not like this. He is faithful in all my house. With him I will speak face to face, openly and not in riddles. He will see the form of Yahweh." Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of Yahweh burned against them and he departed. When the cloud departed from above the tent, Miriam became leprous as snow. Leaders are tasked with a serious responsibility. Being a leader, especially in the church, is a very serious thing. 10 of the 21 New Testament letters deals with how leaders should act or how to recognize leaders that are not acting the way that they should. It is very serious and God holds leaders very responsible. Now, that does not mean that they have just to go to do whatever they want. A wise leader will listen to the the people that uh, he is leading and and take input and is not just doing whatever he thinks is right. And so counseling leaders is wise and it's healthy. But publicly opposing leaders is dangerous. And as Moses said, or as God said, should be done with care. Not that it should never be done but it should be done with great care. They were doing this out in the open, and God said, let's take it into the tent of meeting, into a private place where it will be dealt with. Let's keep going. Verse 10, Oh, it's giving you the the lesson before I've read it. Ah, shoot. I hope you didn't read that. Spoiler alert. Then Aaron looked at Miriam, and she was leprous. So Aaron said to Moses, Oh my lord, please don't hold this sin against us in which we have acted foolishly and have sinned. Don't let her be like, ah. It's in the Bible, but I'm going to let you read it yourself because it's kind of a difficult insult that Aaron makes against the way that Miriam looks. So go ahead. It's in Numbers chapter 12, verse 13, verse 12, if, if you really want to see it. Then Moses cried to Yahweh, heal her now, God. Yahweh said to Moses, If her father had only spit in her face, would she not have been disgraced for seven days? Shut her out from the camp seven days, and afterwards she could be brought back in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp for seven days, and the people didn't journey on until Miriam was brought back in. After that, the people moved on from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran, which means dwelling of, of caverns or caves. And so here, from this we see that when Aaron speaks to Moses, Moses says, yeah, let's let just take away the leprosy, God. Come on, do it now. And God says, no. There needs to be something that is done first. Because you see, First John chapter 1, verse 9, tells us that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As soon as you and I sin and take it before God and say, God, I did it, it was wrong and you you confess it to God, He says He will forgive you, and you and God will be on right terms again. However, at the same time, relational forgiveness, and we Christians need to understand this, does not mean that you avoid discipline on earth. If you go to a casino, and you gamble away all your money, and you confess it, then God will forgive you, but you still lost all your money, right? Right? You can receive forgiveness from God, but still have to deal with the discipline on earth, with the consequences that come. And we need to understand that. So, that's a lot. That's a bit of a downer too, isn't it? Welcome to Rock Bible Chapel, everyone. (laughs) And yet, if we didn't preach this, if I if I chose to skip over this text, I would not be a faithful pastor if I chose to just go with the easy, light-hearted stuff. We need to deal with what the Bible tells us. And I think that even though we look here and we see that there are four symptoms that the people are facing, they complain, we see the dark side of nostalgia, we see a risk of burnout for Moses... And we see the danger, the warning against selfish ambition in Miriam and Aaron. At the same time, I call these symptoms because these are not the root problems. Rather, they are the signs, the symptoms of a deeper disease that has struck the people of Israel that God is working to remove from them. And that is the disease of mistrust. Now, what is mistrust? What does this mean for your life and mine? Well, I decided that, you know how, if you get a, an actual sickness or you suspect you did, you might go online to WebMD to find out what it is, right? Find out information about it. I kind of made, a uh, just for fun, a little WebMDiv article. MDiv being like Master of Divinity, the degree a lot of pastors have. It's supposed to be funny. Anyways, hopefully this can under- help us understand what mistrust is, how you can recognize it, what happens if you don't deal with it, and how we should deal with it. Mistrust is the root problem of Israel, and it's the root problem of many of our lives too. What is it? Mistrust is a disease of the soul, in which a person gets the faithfulness, love, and power of God, and judges his or her circumstances according to any other measure. When you look at your life and the struggles that you're having and you forget you're not thinking about how God is loving and faithful and powerful through that, you are, you are suffering from mistrust. And the human body has a distinct susceptibility to mistrust. It's not just people who have not trusted in the Gospel. Anyone can fall victim to this. Fall victim with air quotes. How do you recognize if you have it in your life then? Well, that's rather simple, actually. In its early stages, mistrust is very closely tied to anxiety. What is anxiety? It is a self-delusion that if you throw more effort, more thinking faster and harder about it, more time or more energy, then you can make your problems go away. And so you do. You put your energy towards it. You put your work, you put your thought and you're just running and you're getting anxious. Now tell me, has anyone over the past year, no, no, past month, no, sorry, past week, no. How about yesterday? Has anyone struggled with a lot of anxiety coming into their life yesterday about something going on in their life? I'm, I'm raising my hand because yes, I have. Well, there's at least four people. And the rest of you, I guess, just don't like to raise your hands. We all struggle with anxiety in our lives. Things that make us anxious. And every time that you see anxiety coming in your life, you know, you can recognize then that you are facing... These are the early signs of mistrust. Well, that's the early sign. What happens if you don't deal with it? Or if you try to deal with it the wrong way? You might try to throw some some self-effort at it, discipline, uh, and say, "Man, like I better not complain. I feel anxious, but I'm just going to make myself not complain. I'm going to make myself think positive thoughts, and I'm going to make myself not, you know, do the deal with this. I'm going to read my Bible more, and somehow reading my Bible is going to magically make me not so anxious because magic, spiritual magic, but magic." I'm going to go to church more, and going to church is going to make me feel better. Now, these things are good, except for shame. And they may help you to suppress the symptoms for a time. But they are not the cure. They only suppress the symptoms. They don't deal with the root problem that is causing these symptoms to pop up in your life. Because the root problem is a lack of trust. And if mistrust is not dealt with, it's going to have a cumulative effect in your life. Eventually revealing itself as more severe, long-term symptoms, such as bitterness, cynicism, apathy, and apostasy. What do these mean? Bitterness. You take an area where you are anxious in your life, and if not dealt with, over time it dives down deep into your soul and buries roots and that become very, very hard to get rid of, like Japanese knotwood wood in our house. It dives down deep and makes these roots, and you cannot get rid of it, and it warps the way that you think about a person or a situation, so you cannot think clearly about it anymore. Just knee-jerk reactions anytime it comes up. That's bitterness. Cynicism, what is that? Rather than diving down deep, it spreads across into other areas of your life. Where you said, well, God didn't help me there, so it changes your attitude, the way that you think about other things. Then you start to say, you know what, I guess I can't trust God with anything anymore. You become a cynic. Apathy is similar but it's it's different. It can either go stay in that one area or it can spread out to other areas of your life. But it basically, apathy is where you are so not trusting that anything will do. You threw your effort at it and it didn't work. And now you just say, I give up. I don't even care anymore. I just want no part in this. I just give up. That is apathy. And finally, apostasy. That's a more of a religious term. And that is perhaps the, the worst of all, where a person says, you know what? I'm just going to give up entirely on Jesus, on the gospel, on the church. I'm just done with it, and I'm going to walk away. This is what happens if you do not deal with mistrust in your life, or if you only try to deal with its symptoms, when the root issue is mistrust. And if you allow it to grow and fester until it becomes one of these, let me promise you, 100%, if this happens in the life of a believer, it will absolutely result in active harm to the message of the gospel and the body of Christ. Bitterness, cynicism, apathy, and apostasy actively hurts the gospel and the church. Don't let it get there. Recognize it and fight it. How? Oh, the answer is so simple, you guys. We try to come up with all these different answers. We say, well, i got to go to church more. Well, i got to read my Bible more. Maybe I'll memorize it more. Maybe I'll just pray more and somehow prayer is going to magically make me feel better. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. The only cure there is to when you are feeling anxiety and bitterness and cynicism and apathy and apostasy growing up in your life. The only cure there is, is to focus on the faithfulness, the love and the power of God. Immerse yourself in it. Meditate on it. Intentionally. You may not be used to viewing your life through the eyes of the faithfulness of God. Get used to it. Do it on purpose. Do it deliberately. Change the way that you start to think about your world so you think about everything through the eyes of God's love for you, His power for you, and His faithfulness for you. And as you do, your life will change. So many people get focused on stopping the sins in people's lives. The sins that are obvious. Everything from pornography to alcoholism to everything else. All of that is symptoms of the deeper disease that you don't trust God's love, power, and faithfulness for you. Start there. Stop the sin, yes, absolutely. But it will become easier. And more natural, the more you understand that in your life. This is what changes lives. This is what protects your life, your walk with Christ, your relationship with God, and your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But you have to do it deliberately. You have to do it consistently. And if you do, I promise you, Your life will change. And that is the hope that we can have. Because there is no one on earth who is beyond hope of learning to trust in God's love, power, and faithfulness. So I want to close by asking this question. What is one part of your life where God is highlighting symptoms for you of mistrust? What is one part of your life where God is highlighting anxiety, bitterness, cynicism, apathy, or apostasy in your life? And then I don't want to ask you, just one step. Are you willing to take two steps? How are you going to meditate on it? And how are you going to choose to live as if God is faithful, loving, and true, and powerful on your behalf?